Let me ask you if you're able, if you would please stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord. You can find the passage printed in your bulletin. You could also follow along in your own Bibles. It comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, and then picking back up in verse 47. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented, and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And then in verse 47... While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Would you please be seated? Once more, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word from the gospel of Luke. We thank you that you have demonstrated the truth, the truth that we will this morning look at from this gospel. We ask that by the work of your spirit, that you be working here among your people to proclaim this truth, that you would work it into our hearts to sanctify us, that you would show us our great need for you and that you would use this all for your glory and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Last week we looked at the Apostle Peter. This morning we're looking at Judas. We said we're looking in this chapter, Luke chapter 22, and using this as a character study of some of the disciples that we read about in this gospel, the gospel of Luke. Now, Judas is an interesting disciple, and there is very little that we know about Judas. It's interesting, if you think about the disciples, we can break them into three basic categories. There are those disciples who are very well known. They play prominent roles in the Gospels. Those are the Peters and the Jameses and the Johns uh, and the Matthews, okay, and Andrew. We see a lot about them in the Gospels. There are other disciples among the twelve who we see very little about, and we know not much about them, like Philip and Bartholomew. And then there is another category entirely for Judas Iscariot, okay? We know almost nothing about Judas from the Gospels, and the only things that we do know or we do hear in the Gospels are very, very bad things about this man, Judas. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they only speak twice about Judas. There's one time at the very beginning of the Gospels that he's mentioned as being one of the twelve. 
And then there is this story about his betrayal of Jesus. That's it. That's all we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about Judas Iscariot. It's as if the writers of the Gospels, having experienced all of these events with Jesus, some years later, sitting down to write the Gospels, were thinking, well, we can't even mention his name. Though he was there, present with Jesus, hearing the words of Christ, experiencing and watching the miracles of Jesus, they couldn't bear to even mention his name through the record of their gospel. And yet this morning, as I mentioned last week, we're going to take an opportunity to try to look at this character, Judas Iscariot, to deduce anything we can about him before we make conclusions about why he's here in the Scriptures and what this means for us. So what can we say about Judas, one of the disciples of Jesus? You know, I find it interesting, this is not in the Bible, but I find it interesting every time we see an artist rendering of Judas or we watch a movie where there's a character who's portraying Judas, doesn't he always seem to sort of be the same type of character, the same visual features and attributes? As I, as I draw them, I think you'll, you'll recall what I'm talking about here. When we think about Judas in, 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 as he's rendered in a lot of artist renderings, he usually has like a sharp chin, doesn't he? Maybe a little pointy beard, Okay but it's like an evil beard. He usually has a sharp, pointy nose. You know the, right? You guys get it. Small, beady eyes, okay? And when we see him, as he's usually depicted by any artist or or movie depiction, uh, he usually has a very suspicious look on his face, doesn't he, right? Like an evil grin uh, that he's doing something uh, very dangerous. Uh, That's the depiction we get of Judas. Now, We don't know if that's what he looked like. As a matter of fact, I think it would be more helpful for us to not envision him like that, okay? I like to envision him as a a jolly man, right, with a big grin on his face. Everybody loves Judas, okay? Because what we're going to find out about Judas is this really isn't the way he appeared, at least not to the 12 disciples, okay? But what do we know about him from the Scriptures? Let me tell you, we don't know much, but I can tell you the things we do know. His name was Judas, Okay? Now, I know you're saying, yeah, of course, we know that, but uh, Judas is a, uh, it's a very prominent name during this day and age. Actually, it is the most common name, historians say, for Jewish males during this time period for two main reasons. Okay? First of all, uh, this is from the tribe of Judah. That's where the name originates, and that's a very important tribe during this time period. But second of all, If you were to encounter anyone on the streets in Palestine during this time and you were to say to them, who is the greatest hero of Israel, they would most likely say to you, Judas Maccabeus, okay? He's a great warrior that everyone looked up to during this time period. So we have lots of men named Judas. His surname is Iscariot, which means from Kirioth, okay, from Kirioth. His father's name was Simon Iscariot from Kirioth. We could uh, logically assume that his family comes from the city of Kirioth in the southern part of Judea, a very important Jewish city and province. He comes from a good part of Jerusalem. It's not like he came from the bad neighborhoods, okay? He is from a very good part of Jerusalem. He would have been recognized as being from Kirioth, and that would be a good thing, okay? What else do we know about Judas? We know, I'm going to draw this. I'm going to draw a money bag, okay? We know that he's got some sort of background with finances or money that that 
sort of is his thing, whether he was a tax collector with Matthew and Zacchaeus or he had some other background in finances, we don't know. But in a second, we'll read from John chapter 12, and we do know there that John tells us Judas was in charge of the money for the disciples, okay? He was the money handler. He took care of their finances, right? And that, that likely means that he had some background in finances. Maybe he was a financial planner. And I, I thought about, as I said this this morning, the financial planners in the congregation are probably saying, no, 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 don't, Jews not one of us, okay? He doesn't belong with us. We, that's an assumption, yeah, that's not said in Scripture, but it is a, it's a logical conclusion based upon the role that he played with the disciples. We also know that he had a very active ministry, okay? And I, this, again, is something that we can assume. Let me tell you why we can assume this. There are various instances that we've read in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus sends out the 12 and he gives them some authority and they have very powerful ministry. I'll give you an example. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 and he says to them, I give you power over the spirits and to heal and for the proclamation of the word. And it's very important that at those moments, Jesus doesn't say, I send out you 11, okay? Or, or I send out most of you, or most of you will have the power. He sends out the 12 and he gives them this authority. We have to rightfully assume that Judas Iscariot had a very active ministry in the name of Jesus. That he was proclaiming the word, that he was there present or even actively involved with the signs and wonders that Jesus was doing, and that for all intents and purposes, he appeared to have this very active ministry. The other thing I'd say about Judas is that he is a long-term follower of Jesus, okay? This, this story would be so much easier to explain if we had never met Judas and we get to Luke 22 and we find out that somebody betrays Jesus and it must be one of these new guys who he just picked up recently along the road and he was waiting to betray Jesus and he kind of got in with the band and then decided this was his moment. But no, Judas is a long-term follower of Jesus. We see him at the beginning of the Gospels as one of the 12 that Jesus calls. We see him along the way with the 12 and we have to assume again that he's given every opportunity with the 12 at various points to kind of get off on the off-ramp, okay? Where Jesus says, listen, you have to give up everything to follow me. You can't follow me without forfeiting family, without forfeiting job and career and everything that you have. But Judas, at various points, chooses to follow Jesus. He's a long-term follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, we, this is really all we know from Scripture concerning Judas, okay? I wish we knew more. I wish there was more. We know a little bit after these events in Luke 22 what happens to him, but this is all we know. Now, for as little as is written in the Bible about Judas, there's actually an exponential amount of extra-biblical literature that's written about him. It's kind of bizarre, okay? So little in the Bible, but you go and look at the other literature written during this time period, apocryphal literature, you find that everybody was consumed with Judas. So there's a lot of writing about Judas, okay? Maybe true, it may not be true, it may be historical or it may not be. It's not the inspired word of God, and there's very little we can gather about it because everyone had different opinions about Judas. The, the uh, Gnostic gospel of Judas records him as this great hero, okay? The other disciples weren't willing to bring the plan of redemption that God had laid out to fruition, but Judas was willing. And so it, it sees him as this great hero, but the Bible doesn't see him as a hero. We know that he's not a hero, but... This is all we have from Scripture concerning Judas, okay? This is all we can conclude about him. This is his character map. 
One of the things I, I want you to see this morning as we begin talking about Judas is that for all intents and purposes, as we begin looking at him, there's nothing that would differentiate this man from the Apostle Peter that we saw last week. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of similarities between Judas and Peter up until this point that we see about Judas, right? We said that Peter's name meant the rock, Judas means of Judah, okay? That Peter was from the, the region of Galilee, up near the Sea of Galilee, that Judas was likely from Kirioth. They both had active ministries. They're both long-term followers. Peter was a fisherman. Judas was involved with finances. We, we have two similar characters here. And if not for very, one very important point, we would say, well, they, they're just two regular guys, right? And I think that's important as we talk about this passage. I said it last week. I'll say it again this morning. Part of the goal is not to elevate some disciples and say, man, look at them. They're so holy. Or to look down on others and say, well, how terrible. But it is to see who they are and what God is doing in them through the process, okay? And so one very important distinction, if you remember last week as we talked about Simon Peter, I said there's something that shaped Peter's life. It was his faith in Christ. So that all of the things that were in Peter's life began to be shaped, molded, and formed by the faith that God had given Peter. At the heart of Judas is something very different. I'm just going to write it again across the middle of Judas. It is his idolatry. Okay? It is his idolatry. I mentioned to you there's not much written about Judas in the Synoptic Gospels John writes a little bit more about Judas. Not a ton, but we do get some more insight into this character, Judas. And John says, at least twice in his gospel, he alludes to the fact that Judas is being directed by the idolatry of his heart. First of all, in John 6, Jesus says to the disciples, You have not chosen me, I have chosen you. And one of you is a, dev a devil among us. Okay, One of you is a devil among us. That begins to introduce this concept of, okay, what's going on with Judas? Something different about Judas. But we specifically see the idolatry of Judas' heart in John chapter 12. Okay, This is John chapter 12, verse 3. You can write it down or you could follow along. It's an important passage for understanding this character, Judas. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus, and she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, you likely remember this story, the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary. It says, after that verse, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? If you pause right there, right there and you read the story, you're probably thinking, okay, not maybe what he should have done, but there's a genuine concern there, isn't there? You could have sold the ointment, it's very valuable, and you could have given it to the poor. He cares for the poor. And you might be inclined to think that if you didn't read the next verse. Verse 6 says, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Okay? It's the only thing we know about Judas from the Gospels. But what it reveals as we look at the character is that he's being directed by the idolatry of his heart. And specifically, as John lays out in chapter 12, that he had given his heart to greed for wealth and money. This is what really made Judas tick. It's what was driving him. It's what he bowed his knee to. And so it begins then to make sense, not only of this character Judas, but of our passage this morning. But this is what the text says in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priest and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. I think as we read this passage about Judas, we often read it and we think, Satan went into Judas. What in the world is going on? This seems like such an odd anomaly, uh, something terribly peculiar, extra supernatural. We would not expect at this moment, okay? But what I would say to you is I actually believe what is being articulated beginning in verse 3 is the is the normal, everyday, ho-hum, run-of-the-mill, slavery unto sin, work of Satan in this world, okay? And as the Apostle Paul will often describe it, if you're not children of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are children of darkness. You are children of the prince of the power of this air, uh, of the air. You are the progeny of Satan. You are in bondage and slavery, to the deceiver of the children of God. And what's being described here about Judas is simply the fact that his heart was given to idolatry. And now this is the avenue by which Satan controls Judas. He begins to move in his life, bringing these events to fruition by the influence that he maintains over a child of darkness. Okay? So Judas' heart is given to this idolatry. Now, how do we... How do we know that for sure? I think it's important that all of the gospel writers, they record this very interesting detail. We have a a short articulation by Luke of this betrayal, but what does he make sure to tell us? That the the leaders of the chief priests and and the leaders who are there meeting with Judas, that they pay him money. And Matthew, Mark, and John will tell us not only they pay him money, but it's actually 30 pieces of silver. Well, that, together with the information we have from John chapter 12, tells us a lot about what's happening in the heart of Judas at this moment. He is given to this idolatry. It is the thing that makes him move. It is the thing that guides him in all of his decision-making. And so here Satan works in the heart of an idol worshiper for the things which he worships for the activities and the events that we read in Luke chapter 22. It's interesting because 30 pieces of silver wasn't even that much money. 30 pieces of silver, they say, could have um, paid for like three or four weeks worth of work, okay? So even in that, you would think if you're following the Lord Jesus for three years and somebody wants you to betray him, you'd say, well, I need a, a lot more than 30 pieces of silver. But this is the nature of idolatry. It, it moves us to do illogical things 
for the, the thing which we give our heart to worship. That's what's happening in the heart of Judas, okay? The thing I, I hope you'll see this morning as we look at Judas is that is, apart from the work of Christ in our lives, that is also us, okay? We said last week we're drawing a, a picture of Peter and we say we can find ourselves in the character map of Peter. We can also find ourselves in the character map of Judas, for apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ by giving us faith, this is us. The idolatry of our heart, it has influence on all the things of our life, right? It affects and it has influence over the work that we do, over the, the things that we perceive we're, we're giving back to the world, over our very identity, okay? It begins to influence and inform all of us. As I said earlier, Judas, like a regular guy among regular guys. If he was to walk in here this morning to trim up his beard, to put on a pair of khakis and a button-up shirt and sit in the second row here, we would all say, well, there's another visitor to mercy. Just a regular guy. As a matter of fact, if Judas was to walk in and visit this morning, he might stick around for a while. He might be part of the life of our church. After a while, you might even nominate him for an elder or deacon. I mean, who's to say, right? This is the, 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 the picture of Judas that we see portrayed in the Gospels. He's a man who struggles with his own sin. And so this morning, as we think about this character as he's presented in Luke chapter 22, let me say there are two things I believe that we can draw or conclude from Judas in Luke chapter 22. First of all, I think Judas is a warning to pretenders. Okay, He's a warning to pretenders. Judas, in this text, is the chief pretender. He is, throughout the Gospels, the chief pretender. Everything about him is, he looks like he belongs, but he doesn't actually. He's the one who's masquerading as a follower of Christ. He's the one who's going through the motions. Maybe at times he felt like he even belonged among them, like he was actually a genuine follower of Christ, but he was not. Look at verse 47, the second part of the passage that we read this morning. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? See, everything we read about Judas here is like the, the great extent of the pretendingness of him, okay? The, the, the fakeness, the, the falsehood of Judas. And even the way that he betrays the Lord Jesus Christ is just wrought with a facade, a kiss, right? We can think of maybe the most authentic, genuine display of, of a relationship is the sign by which he chooses to betray the Lord Jesus. And you could see Jesus there saying, Judas, would you betray me, betray the Son of Man with a kiss? In Mark's gospel, Jesus says to Judas, friend, do what you've come to do. Do what you've come to do. And when I read the words of Jesus, right, being betrayed with a kiss or a friend, do what you've come to do, I want to scream out, Jesus, he's not your friend. He's not actually kissing you. He has no care or concern for you. He's faking. 
He has betrayed you into the hands of your enemies. He indeed is the chief pretender. And I think it's good for us to see the pretenders of Scripture. It's good to, uh, for us to see the pretenders because I tell you the truth, the deception of the heart is complicated. And if we're not careful, and if we're, we're not uh, introspective and analyzing our own faith, we might also live the life of pretenders. We might also live like this man, Judas Iscariot. Now think about this, okay? There are many of you who have grown up in the church. Your parents were Christians, they went to church, they took you to church. And so for you, this belonging to Christ is just, it is what you've always done. You would say, with Judas, I'm a long-term follower of Jesus. That's me, right? Without even thinking about what's happening in your heart, you'd say, I belong here. This is where I belong. This is me. You might have witnessed, experienced, or even been involved with the powerful work of God. So much so that you would say, well, I have a really active ministry. I belong here. This is my people. But haven't asked questions about the heart. Does idolatry rule the heart or does faith rule the heart? You might say, well, I've got, the, I've got a, the, a right name, or I'm from the, the right group of people, or I have a good history, or I'm involved in some profession, involved in ministry, or I've, even I've given money to the church. This is where I belong. This is my identity. These are my people. With Judas Iscariot, you would identify. But one of the great lessons from the life of Judas is if we are children of darkness, and if our hearts are ruled by our own sin, and if we do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter whether we hang out with children of light. It doesn't matter whether we're a member of the church or not. These things do not make us belong. We ought to ask ourselves, do we pretend or do we actually have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus? Have we come in faith? And I say that to you not because we say, well, if you're a pretender, it's time for you to leave. That would be terrible. We say these things because we must ask ourselves the questions with open eyes, okay? And if, if you're sitting here saying, well, maybe I am a pretender. I've never asked that question. Maybe I don't belong here. Let me give you the simple answer. Come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come in faith to the Lord Jesus. Don't act. Don't masquerade. Don't think that if I just keep doing the things I'm doing, then I'll feel like I belong. Don't do those things. Reconcile with the fact that your heart is not given in faith, but is given to idolatry. Come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save. That's the difference between Judas and Peter. It's a very basic difference. Peter had the gift of faith. Let me tell you the one other thing I think stands out in this passage. You'll see it there in your bulletin. Not only is Judas a warning to pretenders, but Judas is also the way unto life. And I don't mean that he's the way unto life like Jesus is the way unto life. That is that Jesus is the source. He's the foundation. Through him comes life. What I mean is that Judas is the one by whom God brings life to us. And there's a beauty in that. Okay, there's a great beauty in that. 
all along the way, as I've been reading the gospel, one of the things that always comes to my mind is, why has Judas been included among the twelve? Okay, why is he still there? I mean, you get to John 6 when, when Jesus says, listen, you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you, but there's a devil among us. If I was there at that moment, I'd say, okay, no one's leaving this room until we find out who the devil is. We're not going one step further till we root out the traitor. And it makes me wonder at times, why do they just go forward? There's a devil among us. All right, let's go. Why do they do that? I think that answer be- the, the answer begins to be demonstrated in verse 53. Jesus says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And it may sound confusing. It's actually a very clarifying verse, okay? The power of darkness, the word that's used there for power is not the Greek word dunamis, which many of you are familiar with, power, like an explosive power. It is the word exousia. Exousia, which is, it doesn't mean so much power as it means authority. And it usually is used for a derived authority, a jurisdiction. It's kind of like this. We say that there's a governor of Virginia, and he has jurisdiction in Virginia, but there's also a governor of West Virginia, and he has jurisdiction in West Virginia. And the governor of West Virginia can't come to Virginia and say, you're all going to listen to me. I'm going to tell you what to do, and here's how it's going to be, because it's not his jurisdiction. It would be helpful to summarize the word jurisdiction there and to say, Jesus says, but this is your hour, and it is the jurisdiction of darkness. You see, as Jesus speaks to his followers here, in light of what has just happened by Judas, he essentially is saying to those who would listen, this is the moment. This is the moment where power has been given to darkness for a specific purpose, for the carrying out of the betrayal, the crucifixion, the death, the burial of the Son of Man. And every gospel writer makes a point to emphasize this at the betrayal of Jesus. Listen to what the other gospels say. In John's gospel, when the followers of Jesus pull out their swords and they want to defend him, Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In Mark's gospel, at this very moment, Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is my favorite at this moment. Matthew's gospel says that Jesus says, do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? This is the same thing that later Peter would speak about at Pentecost when Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, the most beautiful thing about this passage is that the betrayal of Judas, it doesn't catch God off guard. God knew about it, and not only did he know about it, he was planning this. He had ordained the details so that everything that we read about Judas from the very beginning, like, well, why is he included with the 12? 
Or why does Jesus allow him to have charge over the money if he knew that he'd be stealing the money? Or why does Jesus just go with him at this moment? Or why does he submit to the authorities to be crucified? Or why indeed is he crucified? Or why is he tortured and buried? Why all of this? It's according to the plans of God that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That Judas Iscariot was part of the plan of God for the redemption of the sons and daughters of the living God. That he's used as a means by God to open the floodgates of mercy. That we might be called children of God. That through idolatry would come forgiveness. That through death would come life. That through betrayal would come righteousness and everlasting hope. And it is beautiful. So let me remind you this morning, we have life through Christ only because he was betrayed and crucified. And let us not think that the Father's providence extends only this far. For he has authority and dominion and providence over all the events of history and of life. Over everything that comes to pass. And he who did not withhold his only son but gave him to us freely... How will he not with him also give us all good things? This is our God. This is the work that he's accomplished through Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be redeemed and called children of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning. We ask, Lord God, that you would add your blessing to the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word, we ask that you would work even through the record of this man, Judas, the one who betrayed our Lord and Savior. We ask that you would show us, Lord, where we also are like Judas. We ask, Lord God, that you would show us how we desperately need your saving work. We need the gift of faith to be rooted in us by your Spirit. And then as we have faith, Lord, help us to trust you in all of the events of life, knowing that you will work these things for good. We thank you. We praise you this morning. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.